0: Welcome to Queering Left, a podcast from Crossroads Fund. I'm Emmanuel Garcia.
1: And I'm Jean Crocker. And we are the hosts of Queering Left. Crossroads Fund is a public foundation in Chicago. We provide funding to community organizations, activists, and movements who are working for racial, social, and economic justice. For more information, please visit our website, CrossroadsFund.org.
0: On today's episode, you'll hear from Tania Unzueta and Ray Wences. Tania and Ray are two of the founders of the Immigrant Youth Justice League, also known as IJL. IJL was founded in 2009 by a group of undocumented students fighting against the deportations of co-founder Rigo Padilla. Believing in the legal system, Rigo attempted to fight his deportation through the courts, but soon was told that he had run out of legal options and he would be deported. Igel organized a grassroots campaign that eventually won the support of five congressmen, a senator, the Chicago City Council, community organizations, and thousands of Chicagoans. Padilla's deportation was deferred days before he was scheduled to travel back to Mexico.
1: After the successful defense of Padilla, IJIL continued to call for passage of the Dream Act with different actions, sit-ins, and hosting an annual National Coming Out of the Shadows Day where undocumented youth from IJIL proclaimed to the public that they were, quote, undocumented and unafraid. IJIL took inspiration from the radical queer organizers that came before, informing their language, strategies, and tactics. IGIL evolved into organized communities against deportations, also known as OCAD, and remains one of the strongest voices for immigrant rights in Chicago. So I'm Tanya. I identify as... Queer,
2: undocumented, Mexican woman.
3: Yeah, we can start with that. Uh, my name is uh, Ray, Reina Wences. I identify as queer, non-binary, uh, formerly undocumented, and an immigrant from Mexico.
1: So what we want to start with is this idea of, you know, 50 years since Stonewall. And um, as we know, Stonewall was a riot of the most marginalized folks within what was a queer communities back then. And so drag queens, sissies, transgender people, butches, prostitutes, and homeless young queers. And how did that riot, how did Stonewall influence you and the work you do today?
3: So when I first, I remember first finding out about Stonewall and learning more about the history and and the characters behind that fight, uh, when I was a young person at Radio Arte, a nonprofit radio station that existed in Pilsen for many years, and uh, what struck struck me about the story behind Stonewall was that it was people that were rising um, up against police uh, because they were being discriminated because they had been targeted before, and in many ways, I was already connecting and felt. Uh, a connection to their stories because at the time I was undocumented and I also felt targeted and I felt um surveilled by by police and, and by other law enforcement agencies. And so uh that that song wall has influenced not only the way that I see you know LGBTQ leaders um over the years and, and, and the and the presence, but also I think what they did influences just a lot of A lot of the, the, the movement and, and organizing that I have taken a part of, um, because it directly involves people that are, um, experiencing, uh, either, you know, policing or being, are being surveilled, or in many cases, in the cases of, of the immigrant community, are being pushed out uh, of society because of a label of stigmatization, um, that comes from, from various different,
2: uh, places. In 2009, Uh, Reina and I were both part of a campaign to stop the deportation of one of our friends and uh, students at Radio Arte, at the radio station. And I think in that campaign, we had to talk about our stories over and over. And I think at some point, I don't know how, and maybe you know more about this, but I feel like at some point we made the connection that When we were telling our stories as undocumented immigrants, particularly, you know, like, I remember, like, thinking through the first time that it was going to come out publicly that I was undocumented about my friends and what my friends were going to say because I had never told them that I was undocumented and it was something that, to some extent, you could keep hidden. And I think... There was a really clear parallel between having to come out as undocumented and that experience and what I had learned about the experiences of queer people, particularly around the time of Stonewall and like the gay liberation movement. I studied LGBT history and gender studies in college. I was probably the person who introduced Ray to Stonewall and what that meant um, at at Radio Arte because I felt like it was part of part of the history and I think we were really clear that that parallel in our experiences also meant potentially a parallel in organizing tactics and so I think like particularly the unapologetic I think uh, way in which Stonewall and and particularly um Marsh- so, yeah both of those women um you know the 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 sort of like fearlessness that it took both to speak out and to be able to talk about their identities in this way and 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 how that connected to the gay liberation movement and the strategies of coming out of the shadows and Harvey Milk and 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 all of that like absolutely played a role in how we mobilized around coming out of the shadows and and fighting for undocumented youth back then. You know, and and it's always intersectional because we were also, you know, on the shoulders of like folks who were organizing for immigrant rights and folks who were organizing for undocumented students in California and the Black Liberation Movement and the Civil Rights Movement. But I think particularly because we were queer and this idea that you're experiencing something that you can hide to some extent or that you have to come out about really like played a role in in seeing those parallels for us.
0: What is um just thinking about it like kind of seeing things and the parallels of that? It's like what does organizing with a queer lens mean to you? Like, do you think that it makes you? Is it more radical or?
3: I don't know that it necessarily makes you more radical. <laughs> so to me, organizing through a queer lens is being unapologetic about. The demands about the strategies it means visibilizing what's been invisible um and i think when you add things or frames such as a feminist queer lens then you actually are expanding beyond just the identity politics that sometimes like is very narrow and and can you know be hurtful to to movements so I don't necessarily think that being queer makes, a, makes me more radical, um, but I think it informs the way that I see the world and that I um, approach my work.
2: I think it's, it's, in terms of the experience of being queer and, and, and does it make you more radical, I think that there is something about seeing really clearly when your experience doesn't match systems. And I think often that actually is an entry point to questioning how these systems work. And so to me, both growing up undocumented and being queer really helped me to see how actually the law isn't always right, for example, and and why it would make sense to challenge that law rather than conform to it. And so I think in that way, yeah, it definitely has ex- exposed me to or, or forced me in some ways to think beyond the box and, and be a little bit more radical.
1: How does the mainstream movements that you're, Affiliated with let's just talk about gay or queer and immigrant rights, right? How do those communities embrace you? How do they scorn you? How do they uh, use you or How do they uplift you and your activism? So can you just talk a little bit about uh, I? Mean, I'm just assuming you may have some There may be some complicated relationships there?
2: Many. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think the people that I feel most comfortable with are often the people who I've organized with. And I I think at at every level, like from peer to peer organizing to like the families who we help get out of the tension. um, I feel like what I, what I often find is that once people trust you because you go through this process of having to trust each other when you're trying to get out of the tension and where you're trying to fight a deportation and there's a there's a sense of loyalty to in terms that you know that comes along with that trust for each other and i have found that that's the easiest or most comfortable place to be out and queer with people um and it doesn't it doesn't happen automatically and it doesn't happen in like an, a seamless way either like I I, I think that there's you know there is always this like I'm about to bring my partner to this party and like I'm choosing not to pretend that we're just friends for example amongst our base and our members but I think that it like for a lot of them like they already love me in some way <laughs> and so I think it's easier for them to understand or to like not think of me as a, as a as a stereotype for example. I also think it's it's something that has been or can be weaponized for lack of a better word. So I I think that when there's people who disagree with me or dislike what I'm doing or are angry at what I'm doing, I think it can be used and has been used against me mostly in the like you know why are you being separatist, or why are you bringing other issues that, I, and you know, and it feels like it's like didn't I read about this like from thirty years ago, kind of arguments, but it still happens. And I think that there's also like at least amongst the immigrant rights movement, I think I am a little bit always at the defense on the defensive, and like like at least I feel like there's also moments when. I choose not to make it an issue or not to respond to something homophobic or not to be out um, because it makes it easier to work or because I know it'll be seen as, as taking too much attention or distracting from the main thing. And so, you know, it, it is this like constant negotiation, I would say still. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember a,
3: a time when I was Very unapologetic about being undocumented and out. Um, but I would, I would have even conversations with Tanya about not feeling necessarily safe, uh, being out as a queer person in those spaces. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, the Dream Act, uh, 2010 campaign. When I think a lot of us went back and and just reflected a lot on on like the risks that we had taken, the ways that we had pushed the narrative of being undocumented and unafraid, and then what we had compromised or because of of the political landscape and context that w- in which we were organizing in. And after that, I remember we there was a meeting where we said we're going to be unapologetic about like all who we are and and that means really recognizing and uplifting all our identities Um, and to me that was the turning point in the way that I that I also presented myself and and I yeah and I let other people see a side of me that I had been like not showing not being open about and then after that I think we even put together a couple of events that were like undocumented coming out undocumented and queer and by then uh, I think yes haven't been part of a, a successful campaign to stop a local deportation and then like having an a, an impactful movement right of undocumented and afraid to like have a an impact across the country when when we came back and started doing a lot of this i i do think that it caught people off guard but it wasn't that they could look they could look away anymore um and then after that i just feel like there are times when I have felt um, used by immigrant rights movement and the uh, mainstream LGBTQ movement uh, when it comes to to this like notion of of what makes you radical, right? Um, especially when in immigrant rights work, sometimes you know orga- organizing being queer um, can be seen as like, oh my god, like that's. No one has done this before or but it's actually there are a lot of queer people that have been leaders in the in the undocumented and immigrant rights movement but they they weren't maybe they they couldn't be out or or they didn't have access to things like this right recording their stories and and leaving a legacy of what it meant to be in meetings in the 60s in the 70s queer and fighting for immigrant rights you know and so To that, I would say that also in on the other side in the LGBTQ mainstream uh, movement, I often find it that um, it's okay for me to be around until we start talking about policing, and that's that's I think a a point that that is very problematic and especially in 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 this in this time right where we're seeing how our identities our experiences get co-opted and are being used against other communities that are marginalized um and so i think it's it's really important to to both um be respectful of 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 people that choose um not to not to come out for whatever reason right in in the movement but also be aware um that we must continue to organize through these lenses, right, uh, and and question and push back when it's not convenient
2: uh, for the people that, say, have our back. Um, Between 2006 and 2010, um, when there was a big effort to get, like, a comprehensive immigration reform, Congressman Luis Gutierrez was sort of at the head of it. We were literally told to not be out as queer people in some of these immigrant rights meetings and immigrant rights rallies. We were told by organizers specifically, don't bring up same-sex marriage because that was still unresolved. <laughs> don't talk about being queer because that's going to be seen as like controversial. And I remember being at a meeting with Congressman Gutierrez where someone also in the room said, we want to make sure that we have the support of the Catholic Church. Um, so we also can't be like talking about queer leaders. This was 2006. Like it wasn't that long ago. And between 2006 and 2010, DOMA got repealed. And DOMA got repealed on the same day as the DREAM Act failed. Uh, We were all in Washington, D.C., watching both votes happen. After that happened, there was a clear shift in how people evaluated the value of movements. And I think immigrant rights people actually started seeing that there was value in the LGBTQ support because they had been able to repeal DOMA and marriage was next, right? There was this whole thing happening. And I was at that meeting again with Congressman Gutierrez and with other staffers and someone in the room now said, now it makes sense to bring in LGBTQ immigrant rights leaders, because actually we need the support of equality. We need the support of the gay organizations to be able to pass immigration reform. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden we were wanted (laughs) and we needed stories of like gay couples who were getting deported and we wanted like queer undocumented youth to be out, et cetera. And that was around the time that, that Ray was talking about when we started sort of trying to take back some of the ways in which our identities had been portrayed you know every year we had a theme around coming out of the shadows for example the first year was undocumented unafraid the second year was undocumented unafraid unapologetic and then the third year which was that year was actually I define myself um very much to the topic um and that's when we started really like not wanting to stick to the narratives and trying to break some of those ideas and and we felt like the dream act had failed so it was like no no longer a point like let's just like do what we need to do and i think in some ways this moment reminds me a lot of like of that
0: i wanted to ask about just like like a current political moment where we have like an incoming black uh lesbian mayor here in Chicago first time ever and an openly gay white man running for president how do you see your work as queer organizers in relation to the current reality where there is a mainstream quote-unquote acceptance of the lgbtq community
3: in terms of um you know the the question of of uh, laurie lightfoot becoming the the first black lesbian mayor in chicago there were definitely uh people that uh, that I encountered throughout the the la- like last two months uh, before she was elected, that were very oblivious to her role um, as part of the the Chicago Police Department, uh, the board, her connections to the administration, uh, Brown Emanuel's administration, um, and I often found that the the first thing that came to people's mind was that it's the She's going she's gonna to be the first Black lesbian mayor, right? Um, and so for some of the organizers um, and individuals in, in the community that, that had already been experiencing, that had seen Lori Lightfoot uh, during those meetings uh, for, during the investigation of the murder of Rekia Boyd, that had seen the way that um, she had treated uh, the family, Um, and the ways in in which she was shutting down organizers, it was very clear that... Something needed to be um said about uh Lori Lightfoot uh, as she was gaining a lot of momentum, and as a lot of the people that were supporting her continued to just echo the fact that she was a black le that she was she would be the black lesbian mayor. And so if we if we look at the at the map, we also can see that she got a lot of support down um the no- Lakeshore Drive, Northside, Lakeview, all those areas. And I don't think that it's an accident. Right. I think it's just really that that people that are also in those communities are so disconnected from the reality of uh, other uh, individuals and other other communities to the south side of Chicago and the west side that seeing the first black lesbian mayor probably made them feel good. Right. We're going to we're going to vote for the, for, for, for her. And look, she's a progressive, right? Then we also talk about how progressive or like this new term, um, is getting co-opted and, 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 and defined by, by these politicians. And so people on the ground organizers really felt like we needed to, uh, say something uh, about it. And so the last effort was this, like, um, stop Lightfoot. Um, campaign that really, at the core, was just trying to expose um, the harmful uh, nature of, of of like Lightfoot's background, right? The way that in which she had done all these things, and as a federal prosecutor, um, as part of the, the the board of the police. And really, to try to to deconstruct this notion that that like because that because you're you're a lesbian and you're black, like you must be for for these issues, right? And so, um, and then it it came back again to like the, the the like the issues, right? We're talking about policing. We're talking about um the lack of resources in in in, in many neighborhoods and. And I mean, I think we really—I—I I, I agree. That there needs to be—we need to have a serious conversation about identity politics, <laughs> and and also um, how uh, it's getting it's getting co-opted uh, by by neoliberal uh, politicians. Right in the end, I think it's uh, the responsibility um, of people that elected her right to to also take some responsibility for for putting somebody there that that has already shown is not supporting um people of color,
1: so you know when we talk about identity politics right i I think what you talked about are the sort of the sort of the wrong way that identity politics can go or the sort of the narrow ways that identity politics can go where they then are not intersectional. And in fact, they forget the intersections. They they forget the very thing that what we started with at Stonewall is about. And could you talk a little bit uh, both about how you see building a movement or building political work, whether locally or wherever, how you would go about uh, creating that sort of intersectional politics, how you do it currently, and then also, where you'd like to see young people coming behind you uh, doing that and how they would do that.
2: So uh, to me, the most successful and and, and uh, important campaigns that I worked on that are intersectional are the ones where are either about an issue that we can identify is important to all of us in a similar way or are based on relationships that have been built with people over years and over time and over campaigns, meaning I think it's important to form relationships <laughs> and trust. You know, just using the the gang database work that we've done as an example, we really started that we were we started talking about the gang database without it thinking without thinking about it as an intersectional issue automatically or like right away like it was the the gang database kept coming up in some of the immigration cases that we were working on and we didn't know what it was we like wanted to look into it more etc. and when we were ready to start thinking about a campaign um it had been several years that we had been talking to BYP 100 in particular about some of this work and 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 working like with Asada's daughters too around to, like fighting some of the ice raids, for example and and talking about ice and police as like law enforcement agencies that that are people needed to pay attention to, for example um so I really think like all of that has come together into I think building a, a campaign where um you know it hasn't been easy and it hasn't been perfect, but where I think there's real, Building and real trust amongst people. And I think there's a goal that we all see as like crucial and important for our communities. And just to say, like, I I think just to explain that just a second further, like it's not just, like I think solidarity is important. And I think it's absolutely important for communities to understand how to show solidarity for each other. But I actually think the trust building and the relationship building comes when both communities have, like, intrinsic interest in moving something forward and are able to see how whatever it is like actually impacts and is in the interest of each of of, of the folks participating. Uh, the way that I see it is
3: at the intersection of again policing, surveillance, um, incarceration, and and detention, and and then the the. The complexities and of, of you know being an immigrant or, or um, undocumented or or in between statuses, right? That said, um, a lot of our work now um, under the Trump administration, um, even with fewer resources than we that we had before to fight cases, um, it has been increasingly important to highlight how all those systems um, are impacting. Either have are impacting even more um, specific communities, or the ways in which these systems are so so in, interlocked now that that they're uh, that they're actually furthering the criminalization um, of of people. And and I'll talk about two examples. Um, the example of Francisco Roman, who is an undocumented queer person that had. Um, high lack of uh, mental health resources growing up um, and then one day uh, he was arrested um, when he had an altercation um, and then because uh, you know even local law enforcement agencies are not trained uh, properly to handle um, cases like this he was immediately uh, arrested and and then because of that that charge that interaction he ended up in an immigration detention center and so he's been there for months and, and for us to, to support somebody in, in that position, it means that we have to talk about all the aspects of that person's life and experience, right? And, and so it means that we're not going to pick and choose whether we're going to highlight that he's queer or not, or we're not going to tiptoe around talking about the connections between, uh, the police and, and ICE and, and the racism that, that leads to, to think, to cases like this as well. Um, and so for us, it means, you know, honoring, um, Francisco's story, right? And, and not, and, and not pushing him or forcing him to compromise any part of his, of his, of his true, of his truth. In the case of, of somebody like Mohammed, who is, uh, a Palestinian um, person that is in in a detention center f- has been there for o- over a year because he was targeted by the FBI and then a memo by the FBI was then used by ICE to, to put him in, de- in, in detention. And because he is named in an FBI memo, then he was not given immigration bonds. So he hasn't even had the chance to go up in front of the judge and, and appeal his immigration uh, case. In a case like that, then, then we also, you know, are taking, you know, steps to, to again honor Mohammed's experience, his life, and we're not, we're not gonna. Tiptoe around the issue of being pro Palestine, um, because it's about, it's about people's lives, right? And, and so being intersectional, um, and being radical means that you are gonna get to the root of, of the issue. And so that means having to talk about, uh, the interactions and, and connections between law enforcement, um, money that gets funneled to, militarize and terrorize people um in in Palestine and then the connections to what's happening at the border the similarities as well as as how um the law is being used against against people to to demonize them um and to eventually uh invisibilize them i mean we're talking about people that are being kept in immigration detention oftentimes because they're either being targeted or don't have the 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 funds the resources to be able to fight the, the their cases
2: um I think I wanted to say something real quick about organizing with adults, too. I come from youth organizing and from being a youth in youth organizing. And it's, you know, it's it's, it's amazing. I think, like, working with young people is, is amazing. And, you know, one of the things that happened as we were young, undocumented people fighting deportations was that, There was a point at which we had to expand who we fought for and who we fought with, uh, particularly to adults, undocumented adults. Um, And that also meant that we had to shift our entire infrastructure and name and way of organizing because we also didn't want it to be these undocumented youth organizing for all these adults without their input and without their organizing with us and leadership opportunities. And I think it's just really made me realize how there is actually a lack of spaces for adults to organize in and to learn and to talk uh, with each other about stuff. And so I think that's also been a really important space for us to to have to create in, in, in OCAD. Um, and I think it's been that that's actually been like the place where some of the most important conversations that I've had around intersectionality have happened. Because it's not just adults actually that come to our meetings. It's sometimes entire families. Like we have families that's the mom, the dad come and then their four children ranging ages from three to fifteen or something like that. And so I think part of the challenge has been figuring out how do we do programming for both, or that includes like the entire family, right? That isn't just childcare, or that isn't just like that is actually conducive to growth and to learning for everyone. Just to say that, that, that like sometimes is easy, it's easier to have the conversations about queerness, for example, with young people. And I think it's just been really important to actually be able to have those with entire families.
0: So I just wanted to kind of talk about one of the things that I, was thinking about was if you can talk about the particular realities of youth in this work uh, coming out as queer and are coming out as undocumented. I say that as like this young person like committed suicide over the weekend. um, His name was Nigel and was like in high school. But I also think about how there are a lot of um, experiences that undocumented youth face as well. And I just wanted to know if you could talk about that a little bit.
3: In terms of uh, suicide and in our communities, uh, right? And I I have personally experienced um, depression and and all these these things that that just kind of come at you and get increased by you know the lack of resources. For being you know, when I was undocumented, I felt very much like a lot of doors were closed and and I felt trapped. I remember the first of uh, Few cases that the media was covering nationally of people that had committed that committed suicide after the DREAM Act failed and that was that was heavy and I think we even like had a rally outside in Federal Plaza because it was um I think his, his name was Joaquin Luna and I think at that point we had been uh, talking a lot about being undocumented and afraid and, and I remember that day many of us shared similar uh, experiences and yeah it's, it's, it's hard because not not much has changed just recently like you hear of parents killing themselves because take, their children are taken away from them um, in detention centers you hear of people dying because ICE officers are torturing them inside detention and you hear of people that lose hope uh, because this immigration system is not getting any better for anyone and I have seen I'm not young anymore um, so I have seen the new generation of, of young people organized being undocumented here in the city and, and it gives me hope that you know people like like the young leader from um that opened up for bernie right or um uh, sitlelly perez from brighton park um that is you know being a leader in this campaign in the gang database and going around her school talking about the intersectionality of policing and being a young person and being undocumented um you know people like her give me hope and and we're gonna, unfortunately, um, I think we're gonna continue to lose, um, people because of the way that things are. But I, but I do, do look forward to being questioned, being, <laughs> getting pushed back from, from, from the young, the upcoming generation. Uh, cause I think that the, The lives that the experiences that they're facing are completely different from the ones that i faced 10 years ago when i began organizing and so i can only yeah i'm i'm hopeful for for all those leaders in the knock-up academy all those people that um want to come out and and organize and and really like unapologetically against the the police right And, and and against um issues that for so many for so many years uh i think we're used to pit us against each other, and now we're seeing how it's actually, they're pointing the finger in the right direction, and they're not being unapologetic about it.
0: Thank you for sharing that.
1: Mm-hmm. Could could you just comment a, a bit on how your liberation is connected to the folks at Stonewall?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely see a connection between um Stonewall and the history of Stonewall and, and where we're at now. I, I did a radio story once on Stonewall. Um it was literally just like me narrating the story because I thought that I just thought people should know in Spanish and I just like wanted to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um and I feel like what I remember about doing that piece was like imagining sort of the the frustration and the moment and the just like the decision making that you have to like make while all of that is happening. And I think I, I remember thinking a lot about what was happening while people were in the bar and and the police were outside. But but just like those moments and I think it's like I don't know that I've ever like thought about it this explicitly, but I, I, I think that there's this definite inspiration that comes from it because something that i also wanted to say earlier like when when we first started saying undocumented and unafraid we weren't unafraid <laughs> i remember the moment uh david ramirez um one of the folks who also helped found ijal we were in the computer lab and he had recorded a story with Reina um about like the experiences of being undocumented or, or coming to the United States, I believe. And he was just trying to come up with a title. Like he was literally trying to come up with a title for the soundtrack. And he was like, I just want something that says like what we're trying to be, like what what we're like what we're trying to communicate to people. And then he just came up with undocumented period, unafraid period. And we just felt like it it really described what we wanted to be. And so I, I feel like I think about that for Stonewall. Like I don't, I don't, I don't think people necessarily went in thinking we're not afraid of police, we're not afraid of the consequences. I think it was, yeah, just this like necessary moment of of being unafraid <laughs> and just like doing the thing that they needed to do. And and I think they're just, you know, they're part of the example I think of people who used tactics that were outside of the systems that I think yielded results right I I mean I think there's other examples there's ACT UP for example and and I think also remember looking a lot at their tactics but I think it is sort of a very visible example of a group of people who needed to fight back and I think it shows yeah just that that riots are also part of progress. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I came across the the speech by Silvia Rivera and I just remember feeling goosebumps all over um at how powerful, how truthful, how fierce. I think that's when the time when I was like this is what fierce is. This is what the definition of fierce. Um yeah.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Queering Left. The organizers interviewed represent just one example of the fearless movement building in Chicago that Crossroads Fund is proud to have supported since 1981.
0: Please visit our website for photos, videos, and other media related to this episode.
1: For more information on Crossroads Fund and the organizers featured in this interview, Please follow Queering Left on Facebook and Twitter and sign up to receive email alerts of new interviews at our website, crossroadsfund.org.